All right, good morning. How are we? Good? All right, we got a lot of work to do. Let's go open it up to Nehemiah chapter 8. That's where we are today. And while you're finding Nehemiah 8, which is a small, rather obscure book in the Old Testament, Kings, Chronicles, First and Second Samuel, right around in there, Ezra, Nehemiah. While you're finding that, let me mention two things to you just to reiterate that next weekend we are having our water baptism service and lunch on the grounds. And if you've not been water baptized and you're a Christian, um, previously, because I was kind of a, a weak pastor, I would say, I, I think you should consider it. But if you want to be a biblical Christian and you want to be obedient to Jesus, this is your opportunity to preach the gospel. And so if you have been a Christian and for a while and not been water baptized, you need to be water baptized. You need to do it for your own soul, not because it saves you, but because it means that you're being obedient to scriptures and it means that you're humbling yourself and you're doing something ridiculously impractical. You're dunking yourself in water before an onlooking audience as a symbol of how Jesus rescued you from your sins. So if you've not been water baptized and something petty and cultural and ridiculous like pride is keeping you from that, be water baptized. If it's ignorance up to this point that has kept you from doing that, now you know. And if you um, likewise are, are not a member of this church and you want to become a member of this church, um, I, I really encourage you to come to our membership class next Friday night and Saturday morning. We realize there's no real convenient time to do it. We're going to have child care for you. But um, I'm also growing in an increasing awareness that if you're a Christian, you need to be vitally connected. You need to be a member of a church. Not, not because you get some special juice card or because your name goes in a special part of heaven's book, but because the Bible makes no sense unless it's, we realize that it's written to a group of people who have decided to commit to do life together. So, um, hey, maybe this isn't the church for you. Well, then to God be the glory. It's not about us. But if it isn't, then go find one that is and serve it and give your heart and your life to it. And then get, get mad at people there and let them get mad at you and don't leave and run off and, and, and commit to it. And if this is that place, then come to that, come to that class and let's go. Let's do. We've got stuff to do. We've got a gospel to preach. We've got a city to impact. We've got, we've got a work to do, church. And so, um, so welcome. <laughs> All right, that was, that was a little intense. Um, um, all right, Nehemiah chapter eight. Let's pray. Father, just a second ago, I sang a song where I said that everything within me cries for you to be glorified, but that's not true in my life, and I repent. I, I am an idolater, and I, I, know that I, I know that I'm born again. I know that you have saved me from sin, but I'm a pardoned rebel, and still so much in my life, it's about me. And so, God, would you make that song that I sang just a moment ago, would you continue this beautiful and really strenuous process of sanctification in my life and would you continue to make it true so that I'm not a hypocrite when I sing that song and as we open up this book today and as we look at Nehemiah chapter 8 God there's some hard truths in here there's things that are in this chapter that should devastate us before they make us happy God, we want church and we want a little service and we want a cute little sermon and we want the song that we like so that we can be happy. But God, you, you must break us before you can build us. And so would you, would you give us the unusually kind grace to 
give us attentiveness today and to use me in spite of my sin and my hypocrisy and my idol worship? And would you use me, this crooked stick, to draw a straight line from your book today? And then let us leave this place with a strange combination of gladness and gravity. And if there's any person in this room, whether they're man or woman or boy or girl, that do not know you, would you cause them to be born again by the living and abiding word of God? And would you help us as a church resist the temptation for self-gratification to give them the false sense of assurance that if they just do one little thing, they'll be saved. But God, would you cause them to repent and believe the gospel so that they would be born again? And that's written in your book, not on our membership rolls. So God, would you do that here today for somebody that doesn't know Jesus? Would you cause us to lean forward in the foxhole and consider what the Holy Spirit would say to us through this word? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Nehemiah chapter 8. Just as a, as a summary of where we are up to this point in Nehemiah, remember we're doing this, this sermon series through Nehemiah, and somebody may say, well, why Nehemiah? It's just kind of an obscure story in the Old Testament. Well, it has everything to do with us today. You see, the Old Testament is all about God reconciling a people to himself so that through those people, God could bless all the nations of the earth. God chose a man whose name was Abram, later on becomes Abraham in Genesis chapter 11 and 12. And he promises Abraham several things. He promises him that he will have a land, which is now that we know of the nation of Israel today, Jerusalem, the city, the promised land. And he promises him children that will outnumber the stars of the sky. And he promises him blessing so that through Abraham and his descendants, which we learn later are spiritual descendants, not just necessarily ethnic Jewish descendants, but through those people, he will bless all the peoples of the earth. And so the story of the Old Testament, in fact, the story of the Bible is that God is reconciling a people to himself in Christ so that these people can be a blessing to all the world because God is not just about one people or a people, but all the peoples, all the nations of the earth. And if you were with us Friday night, you heard Dr. Jones hammer that point home. And so what has happened in the Old Testament is God has formed his people, but just like we are today, they're continually rebellious and they forsake his love and they walk away from him and God eventually gives them leaders and those leaders are, are messed up as well. And in spite of that, God sticks with his people and he finally brings them into this promised land hundreds of years after he promised it to Abraham, allows them to build this temple and this city through King David and his son, King Solomon. But yet again, they rebel and they're disobedient. And God gives them over to a pagan king and allows that pagan king to destroy them and sack the city of Jerusalem, destroy the temple and take them off into captivity. So you may be wondering, is God the type of God that can use stuff like that to get our attention? You bet. The Bible's full of examples of God allowing, in fact, I think we even have to say causing calamity for his people so that it will get their attention. In fact, there's a word used in Isaiah chapter 44, 43, 45, 46. He says, I am the God who creates light and darkness, who brings good and creates calamity. God will do whatever it takes to get the attention of his people because the 80 years that we live here on life is not all that there is to it. He will do whatever it takes to get our attention, even if it means allowing us to get conquered by a pagan king or a pagan culture. And eventually through that, he woos their heart back and raises up a man named Ezra and a man named Zerubbabel and a man named Nehemiah who lead the 
exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the city and the walls. And that's what's happened, and that's where we are. And now Nehemiah and his people, through much opposition, both external and internal, have rebuilt the wall, and they are back in the city so that they can become the people that God has called them because God wants to use the means of his people to make his name great in all the earth. So what's the... What's the parallel to us today is that we, just like the people in the Old Testament, have a broken down city spiritually. We have broken down walls. We have forsaken worship and we have forsaken what we are supposed to be as the people of God. And God in his kindness is calling us back to individually in our lives rebuild the walls and the temple of our hearts for God and collectively as a church to rebuild the city, the church. And there should be not just one church, but a thousand, a million A billion churches that believe in Jesus that together become the city of God, the spiritual city of God. So that through that church, they can't just be happy and satisfied and separatists. But so that through that church, places like Crosspoint, he can bless all the peoples of the earth. So do you see the parallels between the Old Testament physical city of Jerusalem and the New Testament spiritual city of the church? Do you? All right, give me a north-south. Okay, I know that. I explain that every week, but I hope you get it. All right, so let's read. Nehemiah chapter 8. So what's happened up to this point is Nehemiah, through much opposition, has got the people back into the city. They've rebuilt the wall. Last uh, week and the week before, we read just a list of names, and then they talked about what they um, have given to the work. And now we make a transition from the building project, the physical building project of rebuilding the wall now to the spiritual aspects of the community to be formed. So there's one overarching thing here that we need to realize, and it is that God is never satisfied with an exterior. Like someday, we don't say we need a building, we, we need a building. But someday we'll have a building and we'll come back and we'll preach this chapter, Nehemiah 8, because God's never, he's never like, oh great, you got the wall up. He's always more concerned about what is inside of the city, inside the heart of a man, inside the heart of a woman and the heart of a church than he is with the wall or the church or the stuff. And so what good does it do if we build this beautiful city, if we are inside rotting away? And so God now is going to begin to turn his attention and, in fact, in his providence, cause these people to be the people that he has called them to be. Oh, there's so much in this. Can you tell I'm juiced? All right, let's go. Nehemiah 8, verse 1. And all the people, that's everybody gathered as one man into the square. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read through chapter 8 pretty quickly, make some comments. Then we're going to come back and summarize it with some overarching points. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. So it's everybody. Remember, we just read a couple weeks ago or last week that there was like 42,000 of these people plus about 8,000 of their servants. So we're talking probably about 50,000 people in the city square. That's a crowd. I mean, that's, that's bigger than the midwinter fair. I mean, there's, there, there's people, it's, everybody's together. And they told, listen to this, Ezra, who is the, think of Nehemiah, he's the governor. He's like the administrative leader of the people. And Ezra, which is the book that precedes Nehemiah, we haven't heard Ezra's name come into Nehemiah yet, but he appears here in chapter 8. Nehemiah is the governor. Ezra is the priest or the pastor or the scribe. That word scribe is is kind of interchangeable with the word priest. And so Ezra is the spiritual leader, and he now arrives on the scene, even though he's been there the whole time, but this is the first time he appears in Nehemiah. And they told Ezra, listen to this. We've got everybody 
together here, and they, meaning the crowd of 50,000 people evidently, told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. The other day, I was flipping, or last night, I was flipping through the channels, and the Yankees were playing the Angels on the American League Champion Series, or I guess, or whatever it is. And, and you know when fans like chant like Yankee Stadium, Derek Jeter or Reggie Jackson, you know that when Reggie was coming up to plate, up to bat, Reggie, Reggie, or Derek Jeter, or whatever they chant. You, you know, you, I'm in college football country. You got baseball, it's a game that's played with bats. And anyway, um, um, but, 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 yeah, thank you. But, like, it's kind of like that. There's this groundswell from the crowd where they are saying, Ezra, Ezra, like, they bring out the book. And, and, and this is amazing what happens next. These are people that have been in captivity that just a couple chapters ago were fighting with one another, treating each other poorly, scared of the surrounding enemies. Now, the Spirit of God apparently is moving upon them in such a way that they're gathering together, all 42,000 of them in the city square, chanting for the priest to come and read the book. Something unusual is happening here. So Ezra the priest brought the law. And when we see the law in the Old Testament or even in the New we're not just talking about Moses' Ten Commandments on the stone tablets. We're talking about the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch or the Torah, the law, the book of the law, the books written by Moses. It's, it's, um, there's a lot of stuff there, and he begins to read it. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month, which in the Jewish calendar is about right about now, kind of late September October, verse 3. Listen to this. Get in the story now. Click in. And he read it, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Did you hear what just happened? Okay, here's what we're going to do. Um, not next Saturday because we've got the starting point class, but the following Saturday, I would like all of you to be here on the lawn at 8 o'clock in the morning, standing, please, with your kids. And um, I am going to open to Genesis. I'll start there. Reynolds will pick up in Leviticus. Um, Hawk will start in, you know, Exodus. And, well, back, switch the, the order there. Um, never really learned the books of the Bible song, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, so they will... We'll read, and we're just going to read the first five books of the Bible straight from 8 to 12. Sign up sheet in the foyer. All right, let's go. That's what's happening. Something unusual is going on here. The Spirit of God is moving on the hearts of the people, and revival is happening. I'm not saying that reading the book of the reading out loud on the city square for four hours is the way it should always happen but god is moving in the midst of his people because he's not satisfied with a building or a wall he wants their hearts and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law and ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Anai, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. 
And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. Can you just see dripping from these pages is this God-inspired reverence for the book, for the word of God? If you grew up in a more liturgical church, this is one of the reasons why when they read the Bible and they read scriptures that people will stand and i think that's a great thing maybe something that we should do here my preaching style is a little different because i kind of read through longer passages and preach and i don't want to keep you standing for the whole time although that's what they did here but you see the reverence the reverence that they have for the book and ezra blessed the lord the great god and all the people answered amen and amen lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshiped the lord with their faces to the ground Verse 7, also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabitha, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelatai, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Pelai, the Levites, meaning the priests, or the, like the pastor group of people, the teachers. They helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. And so what was probably happening here was this book of the law was written in Hebrew, but the language of the people, although they, many of them kind of knew Hebrew, just the educated ones, the kind of the common vernacular was, was this language called Aramaic. And so they're reading it in Hebrew. Lots of the people probably didn't understand it. And so the Levites are going around the priests, and they're kind of interpreting from the Hebrew into their common language. And so they're giving them an idea of what it is. This is preaching. This is why you need a preacher. This is why you need somebody to explain the text to you. This is, why, this is why you need, like, every Christian. I'm not just saying this to validate my vocation. I'm saying this because it's good for your soul. You, every person needs to, to be under the authority of the Scriptures preached. Every person does. I do. I listen to, there's, there's three or four preachers nationally that I listen to every single week. I listen to their preaching. And I bring myself under the authority of that word. And it, sometimes it cuts me like a knife. And you need that too. That's why it's so important that you don't just dash in and dash out and kind of occasionally show up to church. I mean, the Bible has no category for people who are not really solidly committed to a local church. And one of the primary ways that God grows you and blesses you and forms you is through the preaching of the word. And you need that. You, every soul needs that. And these people need that. And he helped the people understand the law. The end of 7, verse 7, while the people remained in their places. Verse 8, listen to this beautiful sentence. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Look, I try as best as I can to preach kind of an everyday language. I'm not very, I don't, I don't have a real, hopefully I don't have a religious sort of tone about me. And, and so we just want to be like, we want to speak everyday language and of course we want to be dignified and we don't want to be coarse but we want to we want to preach so that people can understand here and that's an important important thing i think in in forming a community verse nine and nehemiah but see listen something really interesting happens here so think about let's stop back and think okay what's happened they have evidently not heard this before a generation of people have grown up never really hearing the bible the book of the law read or preached and it has a really amazing and interesting effect verse 9 and nehemiah who was the governor and ezra the priest and scribe and the levites who taught the people said to all the people this day is holy to the lord your god do not mourn or weep so evidently 
the, like the power, the heaviness, the, the strength of what was read was so heavy on the people. They're, they're weeping and mourning and gnashing their teeth. And, and we'll read next chapter next week that they're like, they're putting dirt on their head, ripping off their clothes, just going crazy because they, they were so far from what was being read and it was causing grief and tears. And, and, and so now the Levites and the priests are saying, whoa, 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 don't do that. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, why didn't they do that? that? That's a good message. Let it sit on the people for a while. You know, I mean, that's, that's kind of my inclination. Ah, you know, brood of vipers, you know, John the Baptist. But, but here's what's going on. Okay, you've got to understand. What they were reading was the book of the law, which in this particular sense, and and if we're going to make a a really interesting point here in just a second, this time of the year was the time that the law said that they should celebrate a certain feast. And this particular feast, which we'll get to in just a second, was the Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths, which we'll read about in a second, or the Feast of Ingathering. It was a harvest celebratory feast that is spoken of in the Old Testament, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, and also specifically in Leviticus chapter 23. And so these Levites, who were kind of like the Bible scholars of the day, knew what was supposed to be happening during this feast that is that particular time that the people have just read about. And the thing that they were supposed to be doing in that moment is that they were supposed to be celebrating how good God had been to them. And what God told them to do in Leviticus chapter 23 in this feast is he said, go and celebrate the harvest, the the agricultural harvest, and give thanks to God for that. And don't do any work. And then what I want you to do as part of this feast celebration is I want you to go and we'll read about this again in just a second we want you to go and i want you to get all these leaves and palm branches and and make for yourselves little booths now we don't use that word booths we think of like the fair or like you know like like a halloween carnival or something but we but just think of the word like a little tent Make yourself a little tent and go out into the wilderness away from the city and live in that tent for a week. You may be saying, why do that? Well, that was God's way of reminding his people through this prescribed strange deal called the Feast of Booths to remind them that there was a time in their life after they got across the Red Sea and were delivered from Egypt when they wandered around in tabernacles in the desert and they didn't have a city. They didn't have a town. They didn't have homes. And now that they're in their homes, God doesn't want them to forget that there was a time that because of their disobedience, they wandered in the desert. But even then in their disobedience, God supplied. He like made birds fall from heaven and like fresh loaves of bread, like the Wonder Bread man show up in his truck and give him bread. I mean, stuff's falling from heaven and they're living in tents and he doesn't want them to forget that time. And so he wants them to celebrate God's goodness. And so the Levites, the priests, the teachers knew that, that that's what God wanted. In fact, Leviticus chapter 3 has some amazing things in it. It says, it says, observe this feast, take joy in this, rest, don't work. And if you don't take this seriously, I'll kill you. God says it, not quite like that, but that's basically a summary of what he's saying. And so the Levites are like, okay, great, we just read about this feast, and the people are, 
are caused, they're moved to repentance because they realize how far away they are from it. And so they begin to cry and mourn and weep. And the teachers are like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, I appreciate your reaction, but actually what we're supposed to be doing at this particular time of the year is we're supposed to be celebrating. So don't stop crying. Stop crying. Go, go, go prepare food and eat it and, and eat, drink and be merry. Come on, come on. Let's celebrate God. Do you see this strange thing that's going on there? You guys with me? All right. So, so that's why we've got this strange reaction where the people are like, ah, and the priests are like, cheer up. It's, it's, it's really interesting. So this day, so this is what Ezra and Nehemiah and the priests and the Levites, the teachers say. They say, no, 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 don't, don't do that. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Like it brought heat, man. It was a high and tight fastball, chin music. And it caused them to weep. And now, now they need some application here. And so then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, verse 10, and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved in one of the greatest lines in Nehemiah, in fact, in the whole scriptures. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What a sentence. Verse 11, so the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And verse 12, the people start to get it, and then it says, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Can you get it? I mean, think about how, how just chaotic this scene was. Ezra gets up and reads the book, people are gnashing their teeth crying, and then all the Associate pastors are running out saying, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, I appreciate it, but you're kind of missing the point. Celebrate because God has been good to us. Wow. Verse 13. On the second day, the revival continues. On the second day, listen to this. Wow, this is God give us this. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. So something happened in the men of this particular group of people at this time. God, like he lit a fire in the men and they didn't have to be cajoled and begged and like just the men, just there was just like this passion that began to spread amongst the men and they organized an early Saturday morning Bible study. What in the world is going on here? And they come together with Ezra in order to study the words of the law. And they found it, verse 14, and they found in it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So see, they're reading, they're finding, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, oh, so this is why the priests were telling us not to be sorrowful because we found in Leviticus chapter 23 where we should actually go celebrate right now. So they're finding it and they're obeying it. Verse 15, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as is written or tents that you can dwell in. And remember to observe that God and remember that God stayed with you and guided you in the desert. Verse 16, So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. Verse 17. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity 
made booths and lived in them, lived in the booths from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to the day that the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. So it's kind of like, think about it this way, just to give you sort of a, maybe maybe it's not even a good analogy, but I'm thinking of it right now. It'd be kind of like if we had not read the New Testament and we had spent all of our time as Christians and all of our time as a church singing secular songs and doing self-help sermons. Brad's seven thoughts on how to have a better Tuesday. It happens in a lot of churches. And then because God would not stand for that, because the worship of the one true God is not pragmatic, it's God-centered, he causes a revival within us, and out back behind the church, we dig up a Bible, and we're like, oh, snap, we should start reading this. And we open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, And we open it up to the Gospels where Jesus partakes of the Last Supper and he breaks bread and he speaks about what's going to happen the next day. And then he says to his disciples, as often as you eat and drink of this meal, do so in remembrance of me. And then we flip to 1 Corinthians 11 and we're like, oh my gosh, Paul is telling the Corinthian church that we should take communion. And this should be a strange, just a strange feast of gravity and gladness and that we should do this and we should receive communion. And then we come across other verses where it says you should be water baptized after you become a Christian. And we're like, oh, we haven't been doing this. And then everybody just like starts gouging their eyes out and ripping off their clothes and heaping mud on their heads. And then me and Reynolds and Hoxter, and we're like, whoa, 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 I appreciate it, but, but no, let's go. Let's go do communion. And you need to get dunked. Come on. And we're like, yeah. And then we all do it. That's what's going on here. Something very similar to that. And they're beginning now to obey the word. And then there's these words, and it says it causes great rejoicing. Great Rejoicing. All right. So let's keep going. Verse 18, then a couple points of application. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Five quick points, and then I'll be done. Number one is that, and I pray this be true of us, that evidently the Spirit of God moved on the people in such a way that they took the initiative. Like something was going on. Like they didn't have to be cajoled. Like one of the things that I always struggle with in ministry is I always feel like I'm browbeating. Like, you know, come on. And I just, and so I, I back away from that. You know, like if I see somebody that's kind of part of the church and maybe they haven't been around for a while and I, See them in the grocery store, and it's kind of that awkward, like, oh, oh they're down at the end of the day. I'll turn away because I don't want to have that conversation. I don't. I just don't want to be that guy that's like, where you been, brother? I mean, just, jeez, they're just, ugh. Like, I can't stand that. And just, just the kind of the, the culture of guilt that a lot of churches operate on because they just want, they just want people to come. They want to be. I just, ugh, I just, ugh, I just. Here's my prayer. It's not that I would be manipulative enough or charismatic enough or that we'd be strategic enough or wise enough to get you to do things. 
What a drag is that? But my prayer is that God would just move through us in such a way that, that like maybe one day we'd start this service off and a bunch of people would say, read it, evangelista, read it. Like that, that, that's, that's a good, you know how I always joke about how people treat pastors like little monkeys at the fair, like throwing a quarter, like dance, monkey, dance. Now this is the good side of that. Dance, boy, don't give us any junk other than the word of God. Like read it. And there's like a groundswell. People come, they're on time, they got their Bibles. It's got sweaty edges, you know, and the cover's worn and, and they carry it around with themselves and they're not, they're not scared to flip through their Bible and they're like, read it, preacher, read it. Give us God's word. And there's like a groundswell of it. Don't give us fancy stuff. Don't buy sermons off the internet. Don't give us day-old oatmeal. Read it for yourself. Pray and give us the word. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. It'd be great just one Sunday to start. Read it, Evangelista. Read it. But I, don't do it next week. It's got to be the... It's got to be natural. It's got to be grassroots. All right. Second thing. The word... The word must first devastate us before it can help us or make us feel better. We live in a culture that sells pragmatism and success. And our Bible bookstores and our Christian culture and conferences are full of candy Christianity. And even though the reaction was wrong because they were misapplying the word of God and they shouldn't have been grieving, but they should have been celebrating, I very much appreciate the reaction of the people. Like they didn't just dart in to get the latest seven promises for you book or they, like these people's theology went deeper than the latest Max Licato book. Okay, and I'm not busting on Max Licato. I think he's a wonderful man, a great pastor, and an excellent writer. But if your sense of the scriptures only goes that deep, it's candy theology. It's like doctrine and truth is a bad word for modern American Christians. Come on. Like the word's got to devastate you, man. I'm a sinner. I'm a pardoned rebel, and this stuff should break me before it can build me. And you too. So you've got to read whole books of the Bible. You can't just parachute down into a proverb or into a little verse that you had underlined from the flannel graph Sunday school days. You've got to know the book. Right? You've got to know the book. And the book should, like, it should break you, man. It should break you. And it should devastate you. And then it'll, it'll build you up as you're part of a grace-filled community that humbly loves Jesus and says, yeah, 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 that, that's in there, so let's deal with that. So let's live that way. Let's live that way. And guys, I'm, I'm delivering this forcefully because I desperately want us to get this, not because I have arrived and you haven't. Look, the, like I, I, the, the word devastates me. Like, just, I'm so far away from where I should be. It is a marvel that God does not break open the ceiling right now and yank me up out of here and drop me back in that field. 
The word should devastate us. Like men, you got to read this. Women, you got you got to read this. It should, it should, it should. Th- there should be a strange combination of gravity and gladness when we come to God's word. And no, let's go on. All right, number three. Obedience to God is countercultural. But think about what's happening here. They've been living amongst the Babylonians and the Persians kind of adopting their lifestyle. And now they've been called back to go to this city of their forefathers to rebuild it. In fact, in the book of Ezra, Ezra takes this stand against interracial marriage, not, listen to me, not because we now in the New Testament era should see interracial marriage as bad, but because marriage in that time and ethnicities were bound up in the ethnicity of God forming his people And so what was happening is the Jews were mixing their faith with other pagan cultures. And Ezra, in in the book prior to Nehemiah, is so upset about the, the carnality and the worldliness and the lack of holiness in his people by blending with other cultures and customs and taking on their gods. It says that he sat down one day, cried all day, and began to pull out lumps of hair. Right? And so the people had taken on the customs and the way of life. And now they come across this festival that they should be observing, which says, it it doesn't say you should be a better worker or you should be like a, a more helpful person or you should have more wisdom so that when you go to work with the pagans that you work, they'll see and it'll be more practical. No, God says something really impractical. He says, make a tent with bushes and go live outside of the city. That's weird. That's goofy. That's countercultural. And that's ridiculous. Exactly. Exactly. Obedience to God is always countercultural. Like, like not getting drunk if you're a college kid on Friday night and Saturday night is countercultural. Like, deciding to court your potential spouse and keep your hands to yourself and your pants on and not cohabitate to try it out for a while and to not have sex with anybody but just your spouse for the rest of your life that is ridiculously impractical is it not according to the wisdom of the world yeah that's crazy you wouldn't want to do anything like that (laughs) it's the wisdom of the world it's impractical not to try it out Right? Do you see? God's way is always impractical, but always far more wiser than the ways of this world. It's impractical if you've been born with with blessing financially to be generous for the sake of the gospel. Hoard it for yourself. Save up your 401k. Obedience is always impractical. Now make us a make us a risky like really. I would rather we. I'd rather we mess up an application in our fervency to be obedient than to be always pragmatic in a culture that doesn't need the wisdom of this world but needs the wisdom of God. So it would be awesome if on the Sunday that you decide to scream at me, preach it, boy, to be spending the night on the front lawn of the schoolhouse in a tent made of palm branches. That'd be awesome. Two more points. God will not forsake his people. 
but will complete his work in them. Like, they, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. But evidently, God chose in Nehemiah 8.1 to move upon the people through no effort of their own. He chose to send a wind of his spirit so that they would not just have the city in the exterior walls, but so that they would continue this formation, this spiritual formation, so that they would be a people through whom he could bless all the nations of the earth. I'm going to read you this verse. And it is one of the most important verses that I have ever come across in the Bible. And the implications of this verse, we've read it a lot here, are devastatingly spectacular. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. We're going to put it up on the screen. In fact, this verse is so charged with power and even controversy that I think it should have a little wick growing out of it attached to a stick of dynamite. That's, that's what I think. Listen to this verse. Okay. In the context of this, that God will form his people into what he wants them to be for the sake of his glory and their joy. So you become a Christian and you're struggling with sin, and you wonder if God's going to give up on you. And you keep doing the thing secretly that you, that you know that you should stop, and you wonder if God has given up on you in some way. The story of every Christian's salvation and sanctification is the story of God's redeeming of his Old Testament people, Israel. And so, so we need the steel and the strength and the force of this verse, I think, to really understand what's happening in the life of every Christian that's in this room in sanctification. Listen to this verse. I'm going to read it slowly. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he, let me read the first part again, those whom he foreknew. Now that particular phrase is one of the most controversial in all the Bible. And Christians that believe and love Jesus come down on either side of that issue. Some think that you're a Christian because you chose God. Others think that you're a Christian because God chose you. I think I'm a Christian because God chose me. And because God knew me and predestined me to be conformed to the image of his son. I realize that's controversial. You don't have to believe that. I do because the reason I do is I believe now that it gives me confidence and force and strength to know that not only my salvation, but my sanctification, in other words, my growing into becoming the man of God that I am, even in the depths of my sin still, will be guaranteed by a God who knew me before I was even born, chose me, and predestined, in other words, determined the place that I would end so that I would be conformed into the image of Jesus. Now, you can take this one of two ways. You can say, ah, well, good. Say la vie. Who cares? Frozen chosen. God chose me. I'm a Christian. Whatever. I'll do whatever I want. 
Bring out the cake. And if that's your attitude, and you think it gives you a license to be casual about sin, then read Romans 6, because Romans 6 devastates that and says that if that's the way you think, you're probably not a Christian in the first place. Or you could take it the other way. You could take it even though I am still messed up, man. Even though I've been wandering through the desert just like the people of Israel. Even though I'm still fighting that sin. There's something going on here that's stronger than my ability to grit and bear. There's a force called the Trinity that has called me before time began. Set his love on me and is through the course of my muddy, jacked up, rebellious life. Will, will without a doubt bring me in to the conformity of the image of his son. That doesn't give me laziness. That gives me amazing hope. It gives me hope and confidence that the God who loves me will not lose me. And that the God who's filled me and chosen me and made me his own is in a beautiful process of conforming me. But he does that through the means of my daily decision to bow to him. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion to the day of Christ Jesus. Believe what you want to about that verse. But believing what I believe about that verse has freed me to be amazingly confident in God and humble in myself. Last point. Something unusual happens when God gets a hold of a people. A strange combination of repentance and rejoicing. You know, um, Sometimes when two emotions go together, I'm ending on this, so relax. won't be much longer. Like when your parents, you can identify when, you're, when your child does something just so precious. And there's these two strange emotions that all of a sudden come together in one vein. It's like you just want to laugh, but you just want to cry. You're like, ah! you know, it's like you don't even know. It's like it comes part of the, like the laugh comes out your mouth and the cry comes out of your nose. And you, know, you, you, just, ah! you just, you know, it's just such a sweet moment. And that's kind of what's happening here. But, but a couple different emotions. There's like this repentance. And there's this rejoicing that sort of meet in the same point of time. And the people in one sense are pulling out their hair grieving and weeping because they are so far from God. But yet in another sense, God is telling them through his teachers, no, 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 don't do Rejoice. 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 Like here's the point of what's going on in Nehemiah chapter 8. I don't have any points. In fact, I even hesitated to not even put up any points because I don't want you to write it down and then say, okay, then I, I got to do this. Here's the point of what's going on in Nehemiah chapter 8 and what has to happen in the life of every Christian. Is that at some point we just got to see Jesus. And it's got to produce repentance and rejoicing all at the same time and a response to him with all of our lives. Like if we just got to... Yes! In John chapter 1. Verse 29 through 35, write that scripture down and read it sometime. John the Baptist sees Jesus. Now, they were cousins. I don't know if they had any. Obviously, they might have had some prior interaction in life. 
But he sees Jesus for the first time in this sense that Jesus is beginning his ministry. And John the Baptist looks at Jesus in John chapter 1 and verse 29. And he doesn't say, look, there's the Western religious ethic who if you do three things, he will help you be a better husband. Look, there's Jesus who in a couple years is going to preach this thing called the Sermon on the Mount and it's going to be really good and helpful and practical. And you should live this way. He doesn't say, oh, there's Jesus who will help you when you're having a rough time, although all of those things are true. He looks at Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29, and he doesn't give a sermon. He doesn't give points. He doesn't give any teaching application. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The people had had their city. They built it. They had the wall. The temple was repaired from Ezra and Zerubbabel. And now they're there and God is not satisfied because he doesn't want their faith in the nation of Israel to be pragmatic and, and, and just, just a little place that now their life is good. He wants to stir their hearts and he wants to stir our hearts to be able to say, behold, behold, the Lamb of God, look at me, Israel. Look at me, Crosspoint. I am the reason. I am not a means to an end. I am the means and the end. Behold, God, who takes away the sin of the world. And that causes a, a reaction of rejoicing and repentance and an unbelievable, uncontainable human emotion to respond to God. And then what happens? Those people become an aroma of Christ. They don't become the place that has a better city for other people to come to to hold conferences. They don't become the people who have wisdom on how to balance your checkbook. Although God speaks to all those issues. They become a city that is so enraptured with their God that it is an aroma of Christ that springs from them and it attracts all the nations of the earth. That's what's happening in Nehemiah chapter 8. And that's what needs to happen here. Lord, as we as we respond, Jesus, I confess that I have leveraged my Christianity as a means to self-improvement. I confess that I have in many ways subconsciously even used ministry as a way of self-gratification. Lord, the great English preacher Spurgeon, I think said, maybe it was one of the reformers, John Calvin, he said that the human heart is an idol factory. And that is certainly true about me and us. We want to use you because we live in the West and we live in the South and this is what people do. They go to church on Sunday. They join committees. They participate in civic forums. They, we want to be upstanding citizens. We want to be pragmatic. We want to be liked. And we want to be successful. I want the church that everybody comes to. I want to be the popular guy. I want to be the charismatic preacher that 
people come to listen to. But when I read Nehemiah chapter 8, I see that you will not you will not share that. You, that's not what you're after. You're after, you, you want to break us. You want to destroy our pragmatism. You want to destroy our self-reliance. You want to destroy our self-confidence and our religious silliness. And you want to cause a revival to stir in our hearts. And you want men to lead it. And you want people to just... You want them to at one moment repent and fall to the ground and then the next get up and rejoice. And then you want them to do crazy, crazy, countercultural, obedient things like building tents in the, in outside the city limits with palm branches. You want us to do, you want us to do wild things like that. But, but we're very far from that. I'm very far from that. So would you... Would you help us? Would you help me? Would you cause us just to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? And would you free us from the obstacles that keep us from reacting to you in this raw and beautiful way? God, would you cause anybody in this room today that has come to the realization by your Holy Spirit that they're not truly a Christian Would you cause them to do, just right now, to repent and believe the gospel? Repent of their self-reliance and sin and believe that Jesus is the only sacrifice, the only way. That Jesus is the, the means and the end, that he is life and that there's life in nothing else. There's not life in, there's not life in pretty girlfriends and athletic success or financial success and there's not life in anything else other than you and so God by your Holy Spirit would you reveal the idols that we have stilted ourselves up on and would you would you cause us to turn to you if we're not a Christian would you cause us to be born again if we are would you cause us to have amazing repentant filled rejoicing because you have predestined us to be conformed to the image of your son because you want to use us to cause that to happen in other people in this city god would you do that would you sh- would you shake us out of cultural christianity would you cause the men in this room to be far more serious about the bible than they are about goofy games god would you cause us to be people that long to see the lamb who takes away the sin of the world first would you do this in me because I realize that unless you remove me or just do something really unusual these people can will probably not go beyond me so Jesus if I am an obstacle would you would you be so hard on me that it would it would change me so that I, I could not be in the way? And then would you blow through us like a forest fire? And would you give us repentance and rejoicing so that you can use us to make your name great? In Jesus' name, amen.